0: Good morning. Happy Easter. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 5, as uh, as Dave just read. And uh, as you turn there, I want to give you an update from a few years back. So, uh, a few, I think it was 3 Easters ago, I uh, I mentioned that uh, sometimes uh, we will have days where we're just overwhelmed with meetings. So we'll have a 12-hour day or something like that here, and it's just full of, of meetings. And so occasionally the staff needs to blow off some steam to take a break. And so uh, a few years ago on uh, on Easter, uh, I uh, mentioned the fact that sometimes we play this game called man pong, which is kind of like full contact team ping pong. And it was awesome. But at the same time, it was also a very heated game and by that I mean two things. One, I mean that it was super competitive and also super sweaty, and, uh, and so we realized we need a, uh, a maybe less clammy option uh, in order to kind of uh, clear our minds and take a break. And so uh, a, a couple of years ago, we stumbled upon one, uh, which is this game whereby you just take a topic and you name as many things in that topic as possible. And, uh, and so uh, once you can't think of any more, you just quit. And then you have to sit there like a big quitter and uh, you just kind of sit there in shame. So it's, uh, it's less sweaty, but no less competitive. For example, someone will just uh, say, let's have a captain off. And we start naming as many captains as possible. Yell out some captains. I have no idea what any of you said. It just sounds like this, this roar, but Captain Kirk, Captain Jack Sparrow, Captain Ahab, um, you know, Captain Antonil, uh, Captain Solo, uh, there, you could just keep going. Captain Kangaroo, Captain Cook, Captain, or Captain Crunch. Uh, by the way, if you're ever bored sometime, ask Carl for his opinions on Captain Crunch. That's 30 minutes you'll never get back. <laughs> or... or We'll have a color off, all right? And so, not just uh, things like blue and green and uh, yellow and that kind of stuff, but there's kind of this extra level of respect if you can name some really obscure colors like periwinkle or vermilion or something like that. And then, someone would say clear. And then we'd have, we'd, we'd go away from the game into this argument as to whether or not clear is actually a color. Or we had a biblical food off and that was awesome. So we did manna, you did bread, fish, figs. But then someone would again play the clever card and say Jesus is body. Because after all, he says that my flesh is true food. Or uh, one more, one of, my, uh, one of my favorites, we were doing a quote, disease off, and we just kept going. Apparently the staff either are all doctors or are all hypochondriacs, probably the latter. Uh, But eventually Tim yelled out, burst bladder. Reminds me of an episode of The Office where they're making up these medical conditions and they say things like count choculitis and hot dog fingers. For the record, a burst bladder is a real thing that could happen to you. Your bladder could burst. But our question was, is that a disease? It's like a stab wound or stub toe or something like that. Regardless, it was pretty funny. Now, I tell you that for two reasons. The first one is just to remind you, we're not cool, all right? Yes, Tim is a musician. Yes, Jared was a college athlete. Yes, Zach is a shooting instructor instructor, and Carl used to play the French horn, but don't let that fool you. We're just normal people like you. But second, because let's suppose that someone, we're going to have this Easter text off, You're going to think of all of the passages of the Bible that are fitting for an Easter sermon. Someone would mention Matthew's gospel, then Mark's, then Luke's, then John's, then maybe 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe uh, someone else would mention one of the sermons in the book of Acts. But I doubt that anyone would just yell out 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. But here we are. It's Easter and we're talking about 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Is this an Easter text? Who knows? All right. Actually, I think it is. Uh, It's not the most superficially obvious Easter text, but I think that you'll see the connection as we move along. But regardless, even if it's not explicitly about the resurrection or something like that, it is in the Bible and thus it's authoritative and it's inspired and it's profitable. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together and see what it says. I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself as a Perhaps you're distracted, perhaps you're, uh, as uh, as Zach was talking about in the announcements, maybe you come in uh, with some uh, major wounds over the past year that the Lord would uh, seek to, that the Lord would minister to you. And uh, by his spirit, give us grace as we read his word and look upon his son. And will you pray a similar prayer for those around you? whether they are family or friends or complete strangers, that the Lord would give us collectively, corporately, uh, attention to his word and and hearts that are uh, desirous to hear from him. And then lastly for me, just for faithfulness and boldness, So Father, we love you, we're grateful that you have loved us and you've given your Son for us, and so I pray that you would help us this morning, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you are a good Father and you give good gifts, so we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, which says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Imagine, if you will, that you're watching an episode of a TV series that you don't really follow, you've never really seen this, uh, this TV series before, and you have no idea what's happening. Who's that character? Why is he angry? What's going on? Why is he yelling? Well, maybe that's what you're feeling as we just open up all of a sudden to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse one. Maybe you've not been with us as we walk through the previous three chapters. So you might be thinking, who is the us that's mentioned here in verse one? Why is Paul talking about it? What's going on here? Well, if you wanted to answer that question about a TV show, there are basically two options, two ways to go about that. First, you can just annoy whomever you're watching the show with and constantly pester them with questions. What's going on? Who is that person? Whatever it might be. Or you could go back and you could watch the entire series to catch up that way. Well, likewise with the sermon, obviously, I don't recommend you just elbow your neighbor and bug them with questions every few seconds, and I can't obviously re-preach chapters one through three this morning, but I can try to catch you up, and we call this context. So here's what you need to know about the context of 1 Corinthians chapter four. The book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, And Corinth was known historically for being all about power and privilege and glory and status and uh, so forth. And because of that preference, because of that presupposition that they had in their culture, they were therefore judging their pastors, their teachers, and even the apostles by those standards. Rather than evaluating their leaders on the basis of biblical wisdom, they used uh, cultural standards like eloquence or rhetoric and worldly wisdom. So in Corinth... The the rhetoricians are the celebrities. Whereas our culture esteems those who are handsome or pretty or rich, in Corinth, they value those who could speak good. And as a result, the church was divided. We saw that in chapter one. Look at chapter one, verses 11 through 12. "'For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people "'that there was quarreling among you, my brothers,' What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. So for the past couple of chapters, Paul has been correcting those assumptions. He said that the kingdom is uh, counterintuitive. What's folly to the world is wisdom in the kingdom and vice versa. And this will be super important because Corinth is an absolute train wreck. It's like watching the worst soap opera possible. There's some dude that's sleeping with his stepmom. There's guys getting drunk during communion. There's people suing each other. There's fights over spiritual gifts and marriage and divorce. There's even some guys who are denying the resurrection. In other words, Paul is going to have a whole lot of work to do in rebuking the Corinthians. So it's massively important that they understand biblical wisdom and his authority and his role as an apostle. So that's the context. Now with that context in in mind, let's reread this first verse. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So now having considered the context, you can see how that is going to be a countercultural statement. Within first century Corinthian culture, the celebrities weren't so much athletes or musical artists, but rhetoricians, public speakers, philosophers, and so forth. They're the Oprahs and the LeBron Jameses of Corinthian culture. They value the strong, they value the rich, the powerful, not servants, not stewards. In other words, the Corinthians have somehow missed this fundamental implication of the gospel. And by fundamental, I mean this is central, this is essential. Consider John 13, it's the Thursday before Christ's death, we call that Maundy Thursday, Maundy from the word commandment, because Jesus gives a new commandment that we love one another. And so John 13, the Thursday before Christ's death, he lays aside his outer garment and what does he do? He washes, he washes his disciples' feet. And then he says, and go and do likewise. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean we should all take off our shoes right now, right? This is a picture, this is a parable, this is a, a, a principle that he is talking about, the principle of serving one another. In fact, all of Christ's life is going to demonstrate that principle. According to Philippians 2, the entirety of Christ's life and his ministry, indeed the very incarnation is a demonstration of this principle, a picture of humble service. As Christ lays aside, not his deity, but he lays aside his glory and he takes the form of a servant, a man. And then he calls the apostles to do the same, to lay aside their preferences, to lay aside their privileges and so forth. See Mark chapter nine, verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Or Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So anyone with an even rudimentary understanding of the gospel should know that godly leadership is not marked by things like human pride and comfort and convenience and glory, but rather of servitude and of humility. And not only are apostles and leaders to be considered uh, considered servants of Christ, but also stewards of the mysteries of Christ. Now we've mentioned before, uh, as we've talked about this phrase, mysteries of God, that that simply refers to the gospel. As Ephesians 6 says, Paul proclaims the, quote, mystery of the gospel. Some kingdom truth that was previously hidden but now manifest, now revealed. So the mysteries of God are the mysteries of the gospel. That is the good news of the kingdom of God manifest in Christ. So that's the mystery. But what does he mean by a steward? That's not a word that we tend to use all that often in our culture we used to have stewardesses on plane, but that became sexist. And so now we have flight attendants. And depending on what you think of flight attendants, that image actually can be somewhat helpful. Now, if you think of them as just kind of glorified waiters, then that's really misleading because a steward in Greek culture wasn't a server. And by the way, neither is a flight attendant, just a server. But if you think of a flight attendant instead as the person who kind of oversees the flight as the person who's responsible for the, uh, the 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 safety of the passengers and so forth, then the image is more helpful. That's kind of what a steward was in Greek culture. In Greek culture, the steward or the oikonomos, uh, from which we get the word economy, the steward was an important position in the household. He would typically have responsibility for overseeing just about all the elements of the household from overseeing the budget to uh, the general order of domestic life. But here's the crucial element, that the steward only does so within the boundaries specified by his master. In other words, the steward is not some freelance contractor who gets to unilaterally make decisions as they see fit but rather the steward makes decisions on the basis of the instructions of their masters. They work within the boundaries that their masters have set. Kind of like a flight attendant can't unilaterally just decide, I'm gonna forbid seat belts, or I'm gonna allow passengers to go into the cockpit. You could do that whenever I was a kid, you can't do that now. Or I'm gonna just allow this passenger to just open the door mid-flight. Or I'm going to allow everybody to get drunk and do limbo down the aisle, right? The flight attendants don't have that authority. Instead, their job is to enforce these laws, these regulations that are set forth for them. Laws of the TSA or the pilot or the airline or whatever it might be. So you see how both of these images of servants or of stewards, actually both of these make the same point. They serve the same interest. And what they're doing is they're rebuking these, uh, these uh, Corinthian cultural presuppositions and assumptions. They're saying the apostles, and by extension other Christian leaders, are not themselves the objects of glory and privilege, but rather they're instruments through whom Christ is honored and his will is revealed through his word. And if that's the case, why would we ever pledge our ultimate allegiance or our ultimate loyalty, or our ultimate attachment to one or the other? Why would we ever say what the Corinthians are saying? I follow Paul, but not a Cephas, not Apollos. Why would we put a Paul poster on the wall of our bedroom like we're apostolic fanboys or something? Paul's saying the apostles are just servants. They aren't the end, they're a means to the end which is which is Christ. Now, one quick note to correct a misinterpretation. Paul isn't saying that the Corinthians shouldn't emulate him, or they shouldn't emulate Cephas, or they shouldn't emulate uh, uh, Apollos. Later this chapter, Paul will explicitly say, be imitators of me, but only insofar as he himself is imitating Christ. So the point isn't that Christians shouldn't follow their leaders, but rather that we shouldn't divide over which leaders we follow as long as they're all following Christ. Let's keep going. Next verse, verse uh, two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So I've mentioned before, in addition to not being all that cool, I'm I'm also not exactly what you would call handy. And that lack of talent for fixing stuff extends to uh, things like automotive repair. I'm the kind of guy who takes his car into the shop and, uh, and I just have to describe the sound that it's making. Unfortunately, I'm not very good at making sounds. So every trip to the mechanic is pretty embarrassing for me, especially because I don't really know if they're just making something up. They're just making up a car part. If they say like my flux capacitor is broken, I know that's made up. We don't have that technology for years. But beyond that, I'm pretty lost. And so for example, one time my, uh, my truck had a small radiator leak. So I took it to the shop and, and they said my engine was blown. They quoted me a $7,000 repair. Now, I didn't know if they were making it up. I didn't know if it actually needed a new engine or not, but I was suspicious, and I knew I didn't have $7,000, so I took it to a friend. I actually got my father-in-law to help me, and my father-in-law's friend fixed it for $300, right? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I don't want to pay $7,000 for a $300 fix. Well, as a result, when I take my car into the shop, I have one overarching criteria for a mechanic. I don't care if he provides fresh coffee. I don't, have, I don't care if he has the widest selection of magazines or if all of his magazines are like, you know, 90s edition Sports Illustrated or Time or something like that. I don't care if the waiting room smells like flowers or if it's kind of dirty. I don't care if he's socially awkward or if he's funny. I care that he's trustworthy. There are lots of perks that a shop can provide, but at the end of the day, what is most important is faithfulness. Can he do the job and not rip me off? And that same reality is true of ministers of the gospel as well. Since they're in this position of inherent trust, trustworthiness is essential. It's the sine qua non. It's the thing without which there is nothing. But again, that wasn't what the Corinthians were believing. They didn't esteem humility and faithfulness and service. They esteemed worldly wisdom and eloquent speech and an engaging personal presence and so forth. Now, by the way, lest we judge the Corinthians here, we should understand we aren't that far removed from Corinth. Evangelical culture is a bit Corinthian as well. Think of the things that we tend to value and esteem in quote-unquote Christian leaders today. We look at the size of his congregation, We look at the number of best-selling books that he's written. We look at how many baptisms he's performed. We look at how many or what conferences he speaks at or which celebrities attend his church or how funny he is or how many graduate degrees he has or whatever it might be. But all of that is fluff. It's a distraction from what really matters which is faithfulness, trustworthiness. So every single year, some well-known pastor or teacher or something with a following has this moral scandal. Just a few months ago, a well-known apologist passed away and dozens of cases of sexual impropriety came out and that's tragic and it's frustrating and yet that's just an effect, that's just a symptom of the underlying disease of this tendency to exalt some other attribute over faithfulness. That's what happens when we allow culture to dictate and define what a good ministry is. So what's the standard for assessing faithfulness and trustworthiness in a servant? You get a little hint in verse six, which says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Notice that phrase, not to go beyond what is written. We'll talk about that more next week. But what is the standard for assessing leaders and pastors and ministers and indeed all other Christians? What's the written word? It's scripture. What makes a good pastor? What makes a good sermon? It's not personality. It's not entertainment value, it's not eloquence. It's not even a beard, as Zach said in uh, theological equipping today. It's faithfulness to the word of God. That's the standard by which all speakers and speech is to be judged. And speaking of judgment, let's look at verses uh, three through four where Paul writes, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. All right, we're about halfway through the passage now. Maybe you're feeling a bit sluggish, so let's do some audience participation. Raise your hand if you think that the Bible says that we shouldn't judge others. All right, now raise your hand if you think the Bible says we should judge others. Now raise your hand if you think that the Bible says both, but it depends on what we mean by judging others. All right. Now raise your hand if you just don't like to raise your hand for fear that you'll get it wrong, all right? Okay, here's why I asked that. Because few phrases capture the cultural zeitgeist uh, like the slogan, don't judge me, bro. Or only God can judge me, right? Justin Bieber sings about it. Tupac used to rap about it. People tweet it. People get it tattooed on their chest. Speaking of which, I saw a picture of a tattoo on a guy's back. That said, only God can judge me, except, except instead of the word judge, which is J-U-D-G-E, it said J-U-G-E. Juge, only God can judge me. To which I thought, nope, I'm judging you right now. <laughs> but that's this sort of dominant cultural presupposition that we have. Even people who can't quote John 3:16, know Matthew 7:1, judge not that you be not judged. But unfortunately, that isn't quite the mic drop that our culture thinks. In fact, the Bible explicitly commands us to judge each other in some contexts. For example, in just a few weeks, we'll read 1 Corinthians 5, 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, that's a rhetorical question, and he expects the answer to be yes, that we know we should judge those inside the church. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3, We'll do a few weeks after that. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? In other words, only God can judge me or juge me, right? It sounds good as a slogan for our culture, but it's a bit reductionistic. Like most false teaching, it uses some little aspect or nuance of the truth, but it uses that to obscure the full truth. There are actually two dangers Christians can fall into when it comes to judgment. First is by judging what God hasn't. For example, when you judge others for doing something that's adiaphora, that's morally neutral. So those who forbid marriage or those who forbid drinking alcohol or those who forbid dancing or whatever it might be, those are guilty of this sin. That's improper judgment. But so is, so are those uh, in sin who refuse to judge what God has judged. Those who excuse adultery or recommend divorce for unbiblical reasons or excuse homosexuality or racism or whatever it might be. Those who are more theologically conservative tend to err towards the first. We tend to add things and judge people for things you shouldn't while those who are more theologically liberal tend towards the second, but both are improper. By the way, we wrote a blog on this topic called Only God Can Judge Me. If you wanna read more about what type of judgment is condemned and what type is commanded, you can check that out on our website. But the reason I mentioned this is because if that sort of only God can judge me cultural attitude or assumption is our filter when we read this text in 1 Corinthians, then we'll read something into the passage that isn't there. That's called eisegesis, by the way. Reading meaning into the text as opposed to exegesis, which is drawing meaning out of the text. Drawing out of the text what the author intended. So what does Paul intend? Well, in the context, remember what the Corinthians are doing. They're judging Paul. They're saying that he's rhetorically unimpressive and thus he's less authoritative than Apollos or that he doesn't command the room and thus he's less impressive than Peter or whatever it might be. So what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is showing why that judgment lacks substance. So let me give you an illustration of this and then I'll expound a little bit upon that idea. I've mentioned before that in my first semester of uh, of seminary, I worked at a place called Starbucks. You might have heard of it. I was a barista. And uh, now working at Starbucks requires a couple of skills. The first one is you have to be really bad at spelling people's names, all right? The second one is you have to be able to deal with customers. And one of the things that quickly uh, became obvious to me working at Starbucks is that Starbucks customers often don't know what they're talking about. They just memorize words with no clue what those words mean. So they'll say grande. They don't know what a grande is. They'll say venti or soy or light whip or whatever it might be. People just memorize a phrase, but if you ask them a follow-up question, they just completely shut down. They don't know how to answer. They don't really know what they want. They just pretend to be cultured. By saying fancy words, you hand them a tall and they're upset. They wanted a large, when a tall is actually a small, even though short is even smaller. But anyway, one day a customer comes in and they ordered a cappuccino with no foam. Now, here's the problem with that. <laughs> by definition, a cappuccino has foam. It's like ordering a cappuccino with no espresso. You just get, it's, that's called milk, right? Or you order a cold, hot chocolate, all right? Which is just chocolate milk. So a cappuccino with no foam is an oxymoron, which is what I thought this customer was as well. (laughs) Thankfully, there's a name for a cappuccino with less foam. It's called a latte. The difference between a latte and a cappuccino is the amount of foam. So a latte with a lot of foam is a cappuccino. With a little foam, it's just called a latte. So I marked the cup for a latte so that this customer would get what she wanted. But the customer actually saw it and said, uh, excuse me, I didn't order a latte. I ordered a cappuccino. And I, I said, I think what you really want is an education in coffee. I didn't say that. <laughs> it wasn't busy, so I figured I would make the drink myself because there's no way I can write on the cup cappuccino with no foam and not have my coworkers look at me like I'm insane. So I've just made the drink myself. But a buddy who had seen me make the drink but hadn't heard, this customer placed the order, pulled me aside and said, Jeff, You would to put enough foam on that cappuccino. So in the span of two minutes, both a customer and a coworker had judged me and both of their judgments were objectively wrong. They didn't have the requisite facts to make those judgments. The customer didn't know anything about coffee. My coworker didn't know what the customer had ordered and that was the moment I knew I have to graduate seminary (laughs) so I could stop working at Starbucks and I could get a job at a church where no one would ever judge me All right, that's sarcastic, by the way. (laughs) All right, apparently, church culture hasn't changed much in 2,000 years because Paul was being judged. So what he's doing here is showing why human judgment is not ultimately reliable. Paul's point isn't that we shouldn't ever judge or that we shouldn't ever care about what other people think. His point is that our judgment is ultimately fallible. We're not omnipresent, we're not omniscient, and thus we lack sufficient information. That became crystal clear to our culture, or at least it should have, in the, the, the past year. We saw this last year with COVID before we had enough data to make any judgment whatsoever. Some were already calling this the next bubonic plague, while others were dis- dismissing it as a hoax. Well, it turns out it was neither the bubonic plague nor a hoax, it was somewhere in the middle. Or anytime there's a police shooting, before the scene has even been processed, there are protests, there are rallies about injustice, and, uh, and then others are giving justifications to say why the, the shooting is just before we have all of the data. Well, it turns out some shootings are bad, but mo- others, actually most, seem to be justified. Or when there's accusations against a politician of some sort of sexual impropriety. We're quick to dismiss those claims that are against someone of our own tribe, and quick to believe those against another. In each of these cases and countless other, uh, our culture shows this rush to judgment or a judgment that's based on some standard other than objective truth. Again, it turns out we're not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. Our knowledge is always limited and thus our assessment of events and situations is always going to be fallible. And that's the point Paul is making here. And this isn't just a problem with culture and courts but even our own consciences. Notice that Paul says even his own opinion of himself isn't ultimately authoritative. And if that's true of Paul, how much more for us? In other words, some of you may have an overly sensitive conscience. You're constantly grieved, you're constantly anxious, you feel condemned, you feel unloved by God. But those feelings aren't authoritative. God's word is. Or others of you may have an underly, if that were a word, underly sensitive conscience you don't really care about your sin at all. You feel completely justified and loved, not because of Christ, but just because you're awesome. But the one whose conscience condemns them isn't thereby actually condemned. And the one whose conscience isn't, is clear isn't thereby actually justified. God is the ultimate judge of the matters of the heart. We mentioned this last week, that no one has lied to you more than you. No one has hurt you more than you. The Bible tells you to trust God, to trust the Bible, to trust tradition, to trust community, but the one thing you shouldn't trust are your own feelings. So here in 1 Corinthians 4, the apostle is not advocating that only God can judge me attitude that our culture uses to avoid accountability and to excuse sin. He isn't even recommending this calloused indifference or apathy to public opinion or personal conscience. Instead, he's simply pointing out the fallibility, the relativity, the limits of culture, of courts, of conscience, would make them unreliable ultimate guides on which to depend. As Herman Bovink, the great reformed theologian said, no human being has received from God the infallible standard by which one can judge someone else's spiritual life. So if culture or courts or conscience aren't infallible guides, what is? Well, we're about 80% done with the sermon. So far, not a mention of Easter. You're probably prematurely judging me in the sermon. But we'll get to verse five and I think you'll see where it connects. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So in verses three through four, we saw that the opinions of culture and of courts and of conscience are unreliable as ultimate standards. Now we see why. Because many of those judgments are dependent on access to information we don't have such as the hidden purposes of the heart. So Paul tells the Corinthians to withhold judgment until Christ returns. Have you ever wondered why 21st century American culture is so quick to rush to judgment? Why does our culture feel the need to punish a police officer, even if a a shooting seems like it's justified? Or maybe it seems like it's not justified, but it's just a tragic accident. Or why is there a a push to hashtag believe all women, even when evidence is lacking in some cases? Or why is there a push for a worldly definition of social justice that necessitates not just equality, but equity? I think a part of the reason is that we no longer believe as a culture in ultimate justice. We no longer believe in eschatological justice. We don't believe that there will be a day in which every wrong will be righted and every injustice will be repaid in the end. So we can't reserve judgment because we think if a murderer goes free, then he just gets away with it. We can't stand the idea of someone getting away with something. And so rather than believing what the Bible says, which is that no one ever ultimately gets away with anything in the final judgment, we pretend as though we are the final judgment. In other words, the more that we loosen our grip on the biblical reality of eschatological justice, The justice of the eschaton and the end, eschaton's a word that means end times, the harder we have to push for temporal justice. When in reality, we should be able to reserve judgment because we know that God won't. We should be humble in recognizing the limitations of human justice because divine justice has no such limitations. We're not omniscient, God is. We're not omnipresent, God is. We're fallible, he is infallible. So Paul's point here is that the reason that he doesn't put his ultimate trust in the opinions of the Corinthians or the human courts or even his own conscience is that both or that all three are fallible so he's instead going to trust in that which is infallible and that which is certain, the judgment of God himself. But what does judgment at the return of Christ have to do with Easter and resurrection? That's a great question. Look at Acts 17 and you'll see the connection Acts seventeen thirty through 31 says, "'The times of ignorance God overlooked, "'but now he commands all people everywhere to repent "'because he has fixed a day "'on which he will judge the world in righteousness "'by a man whom he has appointed, "'and of this he has given assurance to all "'by raising him from the dead.'" Notice there that judgment and resurrection are inherently linked in a biblical worldview. You can't have one without the other. They're like peanut butter and jelly or faith and repentance, Macaroni and cheese or Wesleyan buttercup, all right? The judgment and resurrection are this biblical power couple. So what does the resurrection have to do with judgment? I'll mention two things as we begin to wrap up. What does resurrection have to do with judgment? Well, first, the resurrection demonstra- demonstrates that Christ has authority to judge. The resurrection of Christ, him rising from the dead, proves that he's defeated death And not only defeated death, but he's also defeated sin. And not only has he defeated sin and death, but he's overcome as well all the heavenly powers. In other words, Christ has demonstrated he has authority over all of the enemies of the kingdom. He has uh, authority over all the enemies of the kingdom of God because he himself is God. He isn't fallible like human uh, uh, culture or courts or our own conscience. He isn't a creature. He's the creator And thus he's omniscient. He knows the hidden purposes of the heart. So the resurrection demonstrates that he has authority to judge and that his judgment is infallible. It is perfect. It is unerring. So that's why scripture is going to link resurrection to our repentance. We saw that even in Acts 17. The apostolic message is never trust yourself, but trust Christ. And as you turn to him in faith, You turn from your sin as well. You turn toward him and you turn away from your sin. So that's the first way that judgment relates to resurrection. The resurrection provides a proof of Christ's authority to judge and thus provides a rationale for your repentance. God will not be mocked. Each and every sin, every single sin will be judged. Every single sin will be punished. Either you will bear that punishment or Christ has already borne that punishment for you which leads to the second way that resurrection relates to judgment by providing refuge and hope for those who trust in Christ. The resurrection, in addition to being proof uh, that he has conquered sin, is also proof that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, that our sin is atoned for, that we too will be raised to eternal life. Billions upon billions of people have died. A few have even been brought back to life, but only one has actually been resurrected, if you understand what resurrection means. And resurrection thus serves as a confirmation uh, of, uh, of justification and a confirmation of hope for all who are in Christ. Resurrection means that the word that Christ uh, proclaims from the cross to Telesty, it is finished is true. It's finished, all of it. There's nothing left to reconcile God and man. The altar is closed. The temple is obsolete. Resurrection means that in the judgment we are judged, not in our own sin and not even in our own righteousness, but rather the righteousness of Christ. And thus we stand justified in him. And notice the reward, the end of our passage, 1 Corinthians 4 5. It says, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And that's the hope, that's the goal. That's the reward. The ultimate goal, the ultimate reward of redemptive history isn't that we would receive a plethora of virgins like in Islam. It isn't that we would achieve blissful nirvana like in uh, Hinduism or Buddhism. It isn't even eternal non-existence like some secular humus, uh, humanist might believe. What is the reward? What is the promise? What is the hope? What is the goal? What's the blessing of being commended by God? It's the blessing of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of our own works, not because of our own faithfulness, not because of our own goodness, but rather because of the work, the faithfulness, the goodness of Christ Jesus, the son of God who was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate and rose again from the dead. So happy Easter. That's the meaning. He's risen and as a result, he will return soon to judge all things with perfect judgment. So Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, Easter. I thank you for the beautiful reality that your son has not only died for our sins, but he has risen from the grave. So we have confidence that everything has been accomplished. There is nothing we need to add. We don't need to add our own works. We don't need to add uh, anything to the work that you have accomplished because it is finished. And we thank you for for the reality that because he has risen from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead, that our existence is not just this ethereal, eternal existence disembodied in the heavens, but that the heavens will come to the earth and we will be resurrected and experience eternal life on earth where we will dwell among you. And so we're grateful for that reality that your son is coming again to make all that is wrong right and make all that is sad untrue So we pray for your help to believe these things and to rest in them. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.